0: Uh, Jesus says, Jesus says, um, Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If then your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. It goes on to say that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. Uh, Christians have a unique plight. Christians have a, a unique plight in this world, in this anxious culture that we're in. We have the plight of two masters. This is unique for Christians, the plight of two masters. At least you have the, um, the plight of two masters who are competing for you, for your heart, for your attention, for your affection, for your resources, for your time. It's two masters. Now this may not apply to you, and, uh, and, and I want to honor that everybody's at a different place in their journey. You might be showing up for the first time, and you're like, well, I don't, I don't even know about Jesus, so, so this is going to be pretty intense today. I want to I invite you to listen in. And, uh, and pay attention and, and consider yourself uh, someone who's, who's, who's watching from afar to see what the Christian conversation is and what they're talking about if you're really not sure where you're at about Jesus today. But if you are sure where you're at about Jesus, or at least you're mostly sure, or this has a, been a thing that you've been a part of and you've been paying attention to for a while, uh, today is an honest conversation that we have to have because Jesus has these honest conversations with us and we can't escape them. Craig Keener, he says in his commentary on Matthew, that what I read this morning was in Matthew chapter 6. So Craig Keener, he's a theologian, pretty popular dude. He says this in his commentary on Matthew. He says, Many perceptive observers have sensed that the greatest danger to the Western Christianity is not, as sometimes alleged, prevailing ideologies such as Marxism, Islam, the New Age movement, or humanism, but rather the all-pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. In other words, the lie that has been normalized... In the West, particularly the uh, extremely wealthy West, is the lie that material possessions, affluence, wealth—that there are primary means for self-fulfillment. We talked about this last week a little bit, didn't we? Talked about self-fulfillment and our pursuit of meaning. This is the lie of Mammon. That's what the, the New Testament talks about. The language the New Testament talks about is or uses as Mammon. And, and mammon uh, can be interchanged for, for, for material possessions or wealth or, um, or lots of money. In this season as a church, we've been talking about um, becoming a non-anxious presence. And what we've been doing is we've been tracking with this book here. It's called Live No Lies. It's a guy named John Mark Comer. He's a pastor in, uh, in Portland. And, and, uh, and what he's done is he's set up a framework for us to better understand The anxiety that you and I were all living with. I actually listened to another guy say yesterday, he said, according to all statistics, we are the most anxious people of at least our generation, and if not, the last century, and maybe even of all time. We live with more anxiety than any people have ever lived with. We here in the rich wealthy, west, with all of the goodness that we have, with the schools that we have, with the the good paying jobs that we have, with the nice homes that we have, with the social systems that we have, with everything that we have, the technology that we have. Like, we're so wealthy. And he says, we're the most anxious people that there may have ever been. And you might think, when you hear this conversation about anxiety, you might think, well, my kids are weaker than I was, right? You might think, like, they're just soft, right? They're snowflakes or something like that. You might, you might think like, oh, the problem is that they're not tough enough. That's what you might think. Well, according to most studies, that's not true. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with your kid's resilience. It doesn't have anything to do with, with teenagers' toughness. They need some tough skin. Someone needs to put them in their place. That's not the, that's not the reason that they're anxious, right? And, and, and it's not the reason you're anxious, Right? I don't know about you, but when you think about to when you were a kid or even a young adult, like were you more anxious then than you are now? I don't know about you, but it seems like the older I get, the more anxious I get. The, the, the older I get, and the more hopefully mature that I get, the more anxious I seem to be getting. Like, what's going on with that? There's something going on. And so what we've been talking about is, is, uh, is, is that we believe that we, we're called to become uh, non-anxious people, a non-anxious presence in our community. We, we say that because we look at the life of Jesus, and we think, okay, well, Man, Jesus wasn't anxious, and like we said in the last few weeks, like, Jesus, of all people, if he was the Savior of the world, if he was the God of the universe, then he was the most chill God of the universe, (laughs) Like this guy, like, he came and he ministered for three years, and he wasn't in a hurry to do it, and you think the guy who's, like, saving the whole world from their sins, if that's what he did, would, like, be in a real hurry, you know what I mean? Like, more than you trying to get out the door with your kids to church on Sunday, you would think Jesus would be in more of a hurry, because got Three years to do this thing, and it's really it's the most important thing to ever happen, right? And then Jesus, we see the example of Jesus, and he's like relaxed, and he's, he moves at a steady pace, and things matter to him, and they're urgent, but, but he seems to model this life of rest and, and peace and, and community and relationship all while accomplishing the most important thing that anyone's ever accomplished if Jesus is the king of the world, the savior of the world, Right? And so what we've been saying is that, um, is that we think there's a framework that um, there's a framework to w- work out of that is producing our anxiety, and it's and it's and it's feeding anxiety, and it may not just be that um, that people are more biologically anxious than they ever have been. It's, that's not true because we're just not that different than people have ever been. So there's something going on culturally. So what we've been saying is we've been saying um, this. Is that working? The next one. This is what we've been saying. What we've been saying is that deceptive ideas lead to disordered desires which lead to sinful societies. Now, what that means, it might sound like a bunch of gibberish, what that means is that a, a, a deceptive idea, a dishonest idea, for example, like today, money makes you happy, right? We all know that that's not true. We've all, some of the richest people in the world the most miserable people in the world, so money doesn't necessarily make you happy. We know that, everybody knows that, but, but this deceptive idea, it's worked its way into our body, it's worked its way into our soul, into our mind, into our heart, So much that our everyday battle is fighting against this deceptive idea in our own minds and our own hearts. What ends up happening is a deceptive idea is something that's not true or maybe half true. Good ideas do this too. They rightly order our desires. But a deceptive idea, it makes its way into our worldview, into our ideas, into the way we see things, into the way we feel about things. And it leads to what we've called disordered desires. And what we've talked about is that disordered desires is like I have a desire for a Big Mac, yeah? Um, but I also have a desire to be healthy, you know? And uh, I have a desire to live long and, and, have, and, and be able to watch my kids grow up and have kids and even have grandkids. I want to be a healthy person, but I also, like, love, like, Big Macs, you know? And so there's this competing ideas, right? Like, I don't know about you, but you love to give gifts at Christmas. I imagine you do. Tell me if you hate giving people gifts at Christmas. Raise your hand. Yeah, that's what I thought. No, yeah, okay. Yeah, because you're, yeah. <laughs> but nobody, I mean, you wouldn't say it. Maybe you hate giving your brat kids Christmas gifts, right? Because they just are spoiled and they yell at you. But, but you actually like giving things away, right? You have a desire to be generous. Like, you like doing good and you like being generous. And you're not spending it on yourself, you're doing it to care for someone else and it feels so good. You have a desire for that. You also have a desire to spend every dollar that you get. Unlike cool things. You know? like, I've been wanting a new iPhone for like six years. That's not true. Four years. Because I got one four years ago. Um, and I'm, every day I, I, I look at ads and I, and, I, and I see the new thing that's coming out. Like, I have this desire for it. And the problem is I only have a so much amount of money. right? So I'm like, okay, well, do, I, do I get the thing I want or do I give away? Because giving away makes me feel good and I have a desire for that. But I also, like, I also have a desire for things that I want. And so, what ends up happening is we have these desires, we have these competing desires. Some of them are just primal animalistic desires. The desires of the flesh is the language that the Bible uses, it's the language we used to say that there are there's desires that we all have, and, um, and they're not all necessarily wrong. The desire to eat, the desire for joy, the desire for, for control over things, the, d- the desire for even sex, there's not bad desires. The, the problem is when they become disordered, right? And we said, we said when they're out of order, then they're messed up. And then, and then we start doing things that we shouldn't do because that's just not the proper ordering of our desires. Well, it's deceptive ideas that lead to that. And then what those do is if all of us are living with these deceptive ideas and then all of our desires are disordered, what it creates is sinful societies. That's the language. It, we talked about the world. And we talked about how the world, the system that we live in, the society that we live in, is driven by uh, a disordered desires, Right? Like, all marketing, you you see, like, thousands of ads a day. And every piece of marketing that you see is an attempt to disorder your desire to get you to want that thing or believe that that thing is going to provide fulfillment for you instead of saving that money, putting it aside, being generous. You know what I mean? That's what advertising is. And and it gets us every time. I don't know about you, but it gets me all the time, right? It's a sinful society. It's a system that's, that's built in a way that feeds some of our fleshly desires, and it doesn't necessarily lend itself to the good desires that we have. There was a couple of um, financial advisors who walked in here uh, a couple weeks ago. I met with them this last week. They just walked in the door. One of the cool things about being here is like people just walk in the door all the time, and uh, sometimes <laughs> you get some crazy interactions. Uh, just in three months, I have some crazy stories. And then sometimes you have these people, like these financial advisors, and they're, and they're just like looking to, to make connections. Obviously, like they have a business and they're looking to like, you know, get more business, right? But you end up having these really good conversations. And I had a good conversation with these guys. They walked in and I learned some stuff about them. I learned that one of them was a pastor for 15 years. And so, oh, that's really cool. Like, so you would, may understand me. And, and so I invited them back a couple weeks later to, to meet with me. And uh, and to just hear their story, hear what they're about, talk about where I'm at. We talked about personal stuff and and church stuff, and it was really, really um, it was a really, conver- it was a really great conversation. Sometimes pastors don't feel understood by people in the financial industry because like we're just in different worlds, right? And they don't teach us much about finances in seminary, obviously. But I remember um, I remember talking to them, and um, and they, and and so we we're um, we we're talking about. Like, just different terms and stuff like that. We're talking about different financial terms. I don't know about you. I'm so ignorant to this stuff. Is anybody really good with this stuff? Like, I could tell you what RRSP means. You're really good at it? Yeah. So you, like, I could tell you what RRSP means, I think. Registered Retirement Savings Plan. Is that right? See, I don't even know for sure. But you could tell me why you should put money in it, right? Yeah. See, I don't even know. Every year on my taxes, they're like, hey, you've got all this room to put money in your RRSP. And I'm like, nope. Don't know why. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like... You're terrible, right? So I just don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I don't, it's not a world that I'm that familiar with. Like I'm super ignorant about it. I, what I do know is that from the age of 16, I've been told to put $5 a week away in savings, and then I'll have a million bucks when I'm, when I'm retired, right? Anybody told that? And it's like, I don't know how that works. It's a miracle, right? But they tell you that. You're like, I don't know how it turns into that. What they haven't told me is what to do if you haven't done that. You know? And you're 31. Like, are you screwed, Right? Yeah, right. You're saying yeah, you are. (laughs) I know, I know, right? So like that's my understanding of finances, right? I'm like, okay, well, if I had done five dollars a day, you know, I would be a millionaire, but I'm not going to be because I didn't. So, so that's just where I'm at. I'm I'm, and 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 I'm okay with that. Um, It stresses me out, but uh, but it also like it doesn't have that big uh on a grip of my life. But one of these guys, they asked, they said, um, what are your financial goals, right? What are your goals, right? and i honestly couldn't answer them that well like i didn't i didn't know that they were i think they were expecting me to tell them like i want to have a certain amount of money by retirement for good reasons and i didn't have an answer to that i told them here's our financial goals I don't think we're going to own a house in Milton in 20 years. That's what I said. I said, I just don't think, that's not even a goal of ours, right? Because we just don't think it's achievable based on where we're at, where the market's at and all that stuff. So I'm like, that's, my goal is to not focus too much on that and beat myself up over it. There's a goal. And, uh, and I said, I want to, I have a goal to be more generous than I am right now. I hope I can be more generous in the future than I am right now. We try to live with generosity, but, but I always want to be more generous. So I said, that's a, that's a goal. It sounds good, but we really do have that goal. And then I also said, I said, I don't want to be a burden to my kids, like, I don't want to be old and then have my kids have to take care of me financially. So I said, I really have a goal that my, my two daughters, that they marry rich when we're older. Because, <laughs> like, that would be the solution to that problem. It's honestly my goal. Like It's like, train them well, raise them well, marriage material, and then basically fend off anybody who doesn't have a certain net worth, right? That's, <laughs> that's my goal. They said that's not a good goal. I said, they don't know me. Now, I don't say any of this to um, oversell you on our ethics regarding finances. I don't want you assuming that we are this way or I think this way because I have a strong ethic to serve Jesus as one master and not money. I hope that plays a role in my life. I really do. I hope that has some influence on why it doesn't have uh, as much of a grip on me as it may have on others but it very well could be that we just like spend every dollar we get irresponsibly it could be that that i don't have goals because they're because people with goals like they actually have to have discipline and we don't have that much discipline or or it could very well be that i serve the master of money i'm just really bad at it right like really bad at it it might be that i don't know i'm wrestling with that like how much is how much of it is a good ethic and how much of it is just that i'm really bad at this and i'm terrible at serving the master of money. But it got me thinking. Got me thinking, like, okay, they're asking me this. I guess other people have plans. And then I thought, well, what other pl- what plans do people have? Like, what do you mean goals? Who has goals out there, and what are they? So, so what I did naturally is I went to Instagram, right? Naturally, that's where we go. And so I asked a question on Instagram. I said, what are you currently saving up for? And uh, quite a few people responded. And so these were the responses to the question, what are you saving money for right now? Uh, they said retirement right, naturally. It's an Apple watch. This was a child, so <laughs> you're like, huh, you could just get a job at McDonald's working three hours a week and buy one. Um, the, the tattoos, right? They're like one of those <laughs> This young dad, he's got like a one-year-old and his answer was tattoos. <laughs> really? Um, but sure, yeah, I guess maybe that's a thing, you know? It matters to some. I wouldn't mind. I would have been saving it up for seven years for a new tattoo. I don't know if I'll ever get there. I'll probably buy a house before I can get a new tattoo. 20 years. Living on their own, somebody said. They said they want a new car because they want to live on their own. They like, want to be mobile, right? So they're like, I want, I want to save up so I can get a car and live on my own. And then this was the most popular response. Like, by far. Half the people responded with vacations, right? Saving up for my next vacation. I don't know about you, but it seems to be a pretty popular thing, and it seems to be a pretty common thing. And, and none, of these, um, none of these answers are crazy, right? Like what would you answer if I was like what are you actually saving up for? Or like what would you save up for if you were someone who saves money, right? Like what would that be? Where would you spending that? What's what's the direction that you're going to put your heart and your money in? I had a conversation with a friend last week. He um, he's a good friend. He's always affirmed our calling to to ministry. He's always affirmed our calling to uh, to kind of full-time Christian service. He's been He's been a really good friend. He's helped me think through a lot of stuff. He's been, um, he's been there for our family for, for many years. I've been uh, sending out uh, fundraising videos for the last like few months. Part of my responsibility is to be somewhat self-funded for a little bit. And so I've been asking friends and family and people connected like, hey, if you believe in what we're doing, would you come alongside us and support us for a season? And uh, And so I sent him this video and just that, basically that ask. And it just gives a little bit of details around it. And and I do this because I feel, um, I feel responsible to, I feel called to, but, I, but whatever the response is, it doesn't matter to me. And, and I've gotten a whole mix of responses, right? And none of those matter because they're not in my control. It's not my responsibility to convince someone that the Holy Spirit is telling them to do something. I have to trust the Holy Spirit and God with provision for our life, and we've done that so far, and so we're okay. So it doesn't matter their response, but what you get is these interesting responses sometimes. When I got this response from this friend, we had this good kind of dialogue over text about it. His response was... Um, Look, man, we're not we're not in a position right now to to make a decision on how much or whether we're able to support you in your fundraising. We believe in what you're doing, we just we gotta figure a few things out. We're not sure if 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 it'll work for us. And which was totally fine. I didn't say anything in response. No guilt, no shame, none of that. Right? That would be wrong. That's not cool. And it has no bearing on a relationship. Without saying anything, he followed up with I also understand the irony that my wife and I are going on an expensive European vacation tomorrow, and we just spent a boatload of money on renovating our backyard, right? And this is a friend. I know him really well, so like he can say these things. And, and, and what I saw was a friend who's loved Jesus in his life. He's wrestling with Jesus right now, but he's loved Jesus in his life, and, he, and, he, and without saying anything, he was wrestling with this plight. He was wrestling with like going on these really nice vacations and doing these nice things with his new house at the same time as feeling something. Like, it wasn't just a blatant, no, dude, you're stupid, stop asking for things. Like, it was like, I actually feel he felt some sort of, like, responsibility to, to do something other than things for himself with his money, maybe, is the way to say it. And, and just the simple ask, I think, brought that up and created a really, um, well, really interesting conversation. And a really helpful conversation. It brought me back to this, this plight of Christianity in, in the West. We have two masters that are constantly competing for our souls. Constantly competing for our souls, our time, and our resources. And the language of scripture uses is mammon, which is money or the idol of lots of things. And Jesus. And here's the, one, here's the thing about um, mammon or money. The master of money in our life creates enough anxiety on its own, doesn't it? Like the master money, you know, that's why you're so stressed. The more you have, the more things you can do with it, but the more decisions you gotta make. It's stressful, right? The more that you have, it creates more anxiety in your life. I was I was doing this thought experiment. Imagine having ten thousand dollars to spend on a vacation, but you only get to do that once. Where would you go? Like some of you are like, Oh, I, I do that every year, so I don't have to decide on one place, right? But some people like that. They've never they've never done a vacation like that, and you can imagine like here you go, ten thousand bucks, do whatever you want. Can you go anywhere for that anymore? I don't even know. Is that much for a vacation? Should it be higher than that? Twenty thousand bucks, sure, right? Imagine having that. You gotta choose one place, right? I don't know about you, but I like a lot of places. I want to go to Europe someday. I went to the Netherlands, kind of counts, but didn't see much more than that. I want to do the rest of Europe. I want to see Italy someday. Like, I actually want to see Rome, and I want to see, you're not, you've are you been there, yeah, and I want, to see, I want to see the history there, especially studying theology and uh, in the ancient Near East, there's so much there, I want to see Israel, because I just, I want to see the Holy Land, not because it's holy in any sort of unique and special way, but because there's so much history there, and I read all that stuff in the scriptures, so I want to experience that, and those, those trips aren't cheap, so I'd love to do that someday. I also, um, I really want to go to East Asia, anybody been to East Asia? All my friends are doing it, right? And they're, they're going to all these places in East Asia, and they're coming back, and like, oh, it was so wild, it was so beautiful, so cool, and affordable, and they're like having all these great vacations, right? Really amazing, and, uh, and I'd, love to, I'd love to do that. All the cool kids, if you're on Instagram, are going to Greece and Croatia, right? I don't know about you, but all my friends, it feels like every month, a new friend of mine from high school is like, yo, what up, Croatia? We're so unique, we're the only ones who go to Croatia, and you're like, no, everyone's doing it, you're just following the trend, but it looks really beautiful, right? Like, it looks stunning. You know, Croatia, 10 years ago, I would have never thought of Croatia as a destination, and now I'm like, you've been to Croatia? Yeah, okay, so you're like, yeah, it's, you should go, right? You're like, you should go, it's so, it's so beautiful, right? I want to do that, it'd be really cool to do. I also, have always wanted to spend two weeks in Bora Bora. I'm First, like, when the internet started coming out, and they would like, the first... Time I would see pictures of you don't know where this is you got this look on your face okay if you ever see like this picture of like just crystal clear blue water and these like huts that you walk on top of water and then you like live in this hut and it's got like a f- hole in the floor and you see sharks swimming underneath you that's Bora Bora right it's like in the middle of nowhere is it French Polynesian or something like that yeah I don't even know but but it'd be so beautiful and I'm like that would be so wild to go there for two weeks right I imagine I need a little more money than ten thousand bucks to do that I imagine but. But I'm like, man, that would be so crazy. Like, it would be so amazing to do that. Then I'm exhausted talking about it. <laughs> Aren't you? Aren't you exhausted? And you felt like, well, you didn't talk about this or that or this or that. And if you tell me about it, I'm going to add it to my list of places I potentially could go that I'll never go. Because I, I, there's so much to do. There's so much to see. The, 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 the God of money, the, the, the God of mammon, the master of mammon... <laughs> It frees you to do a million things, but the more that you have, the more freedom you have, the more choices you gotta make and the more options that you have. And like you could say, well, I'll just go everywhere in my lifetime and then, then you'll be like my friend who doesn't live at home and has no friends and just travels their whole life, but, but then they're gonna miss home and they're gonna wanna come home. Like there's so much anxiety with it. There's so much stress around it and that's just the master of money controlling your life. We went to Disney on January. And the first thing we said at the end of the trip was, when are we getting back to Disney? Right? It's so stressful. It adds so much anxiety to our life. And the more that we do it, the more that we feed it, like anything, the more lust we have for it. Is this, is this true? You, tra- you were talking this morning, Luke, that right? you travel a lot. And when you travel, like you, while you're traveling, you don't travel and go, I just want to go home and not do this again for a while. <laughs> no, no, you're like, where am I going next, right? This is lust to get out there and go, right? It's, it's super addictive. That's the right way to say it. You know what else is addictive? Renovating your house, right? Because you can't have a sweet kitchen but an ugly backyard, right? <laughs> and if, you, if you make one upgrade, you have to upgrade the other, otherwise you look, it's really weird looking, you know? At least paint the house, you know, different colors, so it looks different. It's, it's exhausting because it, it, it creates more need and desire. It feeds the lust. And that is money, the master of money, the mammon alone. Now, I need to clarify this. It's this important because some people like traveling and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, traveling and, and vacation is good. Traveling's a privilege in the West. Most people in the world don't get to travel like we do, but vacation's really good. I believe that actually one of our problems here in the West is that we don't vacation enough. Not that we don't go to Bora Bora enough, you know, but that we don't actually take time off and rest. Like, I actually think if we rested a little bit more and took time away, and we're going to talk about that all fall long, that we would actually be less anxious people. So the problem isn't taking time off. The problem isn't vacation. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no ethical issue with vacation and taking time off. And I want to make sure you understand that I'm ragging on it because most of the responses were vacation in the conversation I had with my friend this week. But it's not the only thing, and it's not that it's a problem. The problem with it might be the reasons that we're taking it. And that's where Jesus starts to call us to the mat on this. Craig Keenan, he says this. He says, unlike some philosophers, however, Jesus is not against possessions. There's a lot of religious systems and philosophies out there that would say that the answer to all of life's problems is get rid of all your possessions. Right? Live like on a monastery with no desire. That's what Buddhism leads towards or supposed to. Total absence of desire at all. That's not a Christian worldview. Christian worldview is not that possessions are inherently bad. New kitchens are not bad. There's nothing wrong with them. However, he said Jesus is not against possessions because he um, supposes them to be evil. The issue is not that possessions themselves are bad, but that a higher priority demands our resources, either, i.e., a disordered desire. If we value what the Lord values rather than what society values, he demands that we meet the basic needs of people lacking adequate resources before we seek to accumulate possessions beyond our basic need. The issue isn't with having things. The issue isn't with things. It never has been. In the Christian worldview, it's not. It's not a problem with having lots of things. The challenge is when we start accumulating more than we we need. We start traveling way more than we need. We start going all sorts of places just to feed this wanderlust when there are people in our community around us who can't do anything at all, let alone feed their family. That's when it becomes a problem. That's when it becomes an idol. That's at least the ethic of Jesus. The Christian plight with vacations, with Apple Watches, with new cars, with new iPhones, with home upgrades, with investment portfolios. The plight for Christians is not that these things are an issue. Is that Jesus actually says, forget about those for now, right? Jesus says, and this is Jesus. This is not a pastor of a church asking for money, and I promise you that. We're not even gonna end with that. This is Jesus. Jesus says, Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and thieves do not steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You need to understand the prayer that we prayed this morning, the Lord's Prayer that Ian led us through, this comes like one paragraph after. Everything we just prayed about the Lord's Prayer, this is the same Jesus saying the same thing. This is in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, the key teaching of Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus thinks about things, read Matthew 5 through 7, because you'll get a real good idea on what he says the ethic should be. So this is where this lies, just so you know. The words of Jesus himself. You can have a problem with the church, you can have a problem with Christians, and maybe you should. But if you're like, I'm cool with Jesus, his words, not mine, okay? Moth and rust. In ancient cultures, moths would destroy clothes. Clothes were um, a way to show wealth, right? If you're really wealthy, you had expensive textiles. Moths would eat them. That's where that comes from. Today, uh, the, sa- the equivalent would be our savings account or our wealth simple portfolio. Anybody notice that moths have been eating at their investment portfolio lately? <laughs> Thieves stealing. <laughs> Maybe it's uh, maybe it's a good comparison. Where did it all go? And he Wright he says on this matter. It says here in this commentary on Matthew, he says heaven because we talked about treasures in heaven, right? And I don't know where how you grew up, if you grew up in some churches you think always think heaven where you go when you die. But here's what the right saying. He's like, heaven here in this text is where God is right now. And where if you learn to love and serve God right now, you'll have treasure in the present, not just in the future. Of course, Jesus, like almost all Jews of his days, believed that after death, God would have a wonderful future in store for his faithful people, but they didn't normally refer to that future as heaven. Jesus wanted his followers to establish heavenly treasure now, treasure which they would enjoy in the present as well as the future, treasure that wasn't subject to the problems that faced all earthly hordes how can one do this? Well, the chapter, the whole chapter that we're reading so far gives us a clue. Learn to live in the presence of the loving Father. Learn to do everything for Him and Him alone. Get your priorities right. Reorder your desires. He's basically saying when you think about treasures in heaven, sometimes when Christians read this, we think, oh, sick, so if I'm generous today, I'll have a sick mansion in heaven. It's going to be dope with the jewels and the crown It'll be sick, right? You're thinking that. No, he's not saying that. It's not what it is. It's not about it's not about living less with now so that you can have cooler a cooler barbecue in heaven, you know? He's saying the heavenly riches, the treasure, is not is not material things when you die or the equivalent of it. He's saying it's way better than that. The treasures of heaven. Treasures of heaven are well, our love and relationship. And doing the will of God and serving people and looking back in your life and seeing a legacy of generosity. And lives changed and restored and even saved because of your choice to use your stuff to help others. That's what, that's what heaven is. That's, that's the treasures of heaven. Seeing your kids raised to love the Lord and not be running on the hamster wheel of life pursuing all this meaningless stuff. That's the treasures of heaven. In other words, um, storing up treasures in heaven has very little to do with with future death. It has to do with our life today. It's about our investment today. Right? It's about what we understand as treasure today and what we prioritize in our work and our spending. This is Jesus. He goes on to say, and remember, we're saying all this in the context of talking about becoming a non-anxious presence. right? So just keep that in mind. Jesus, he goes on to say, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes disease your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light is in the light in uh, sorry if then the light in you is darkness how great is the darkness now ancient anthropology uh, understood your eyes as like the portal of the soul of the body they actually thought that way and it makes sense if you don't understand scientifically what function your eyes um, have in, your, in in your body and how the whole thing works then it makes sense like everything you look at it's almost as if it comes into you. you. You know it, you feel it, you experience, right? So they have this understanding. And their understanding of anthropology and the eyes particularly was that the eyes actually both um, projected light inward and outward. So the eyes were this powerful thing that, that would actually like, push light through focus and attention and then meet the external world and choose what to bring in. And then would also look down in and push that which you took from the world into you. That, that's how they understood the eyes, the lamp of the body. And so what he's saying here is if what your eyes are focused on or what, or, or, or what your eyes are taking in and receiving are things of darkness, this is in the context of treasures and all this stuff, and then that's what you're putting inside of you, he's saying then there's going to be really dark inside there because what you're taking into you is matters of darkness. That's kind of the, the idea. Where focus of our attention is, that will determine the health of our body. And that makes sense to us right? Like that still stands true today. What we keep our eyes fixed on, or focuses on, what our lusts are, or attention is, if our whole Instagram explore page is the next vacation, right? That's what we're looking at. We're bringing that in, and that's what we're lusting after. That's what we're going to look after. That's what we're going to focus on. That's what's going to be in our body. It also determines how we see things. Let me ask you this. Um, how do you see the downturn of the housing market? Right, it's like, what does it drop? Like 17%, 20%, I don't know. What is it? It's crazy, right? Now, I don't feel bad because like, it went up like 20% in three months. So, so we all knew like, this would probably happen, right? But, but how are you looking at that? Are you, are, do you look at that through the lens of, oh, no, I'm stressed. My whole world's falling apart. Do you look at increased interest rates because some of you are paying them and you're like, hmm, didn't expect that, right? How, do you, how are you seeing that? Are you seeing that as a curse from God? Because your eyes are determining what your body feels, what's in your soul, what's in your mind. Or are you seeing that maybe as a gift from God? Like Maybe it's actually a gift. Maybe it's forcing us to live more simply and live with less and, and to be more, better stewards, right? So our eyes, both they take things in from the external world and they determine how we see them. The same thing, so you can see one thing and see it totally differently than somebody else. That's, that's the idea, and Jesus is saying that where we focus our attention and our mind will determine where our heart goes. That's his point. And then he goes on to say, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve money and God. We talked about mimesis and poiesis last week, and the whole idea was that uh, poiesis is, is creating meaning from within that didn't exist before, and a mimetic worldview is to see meaning as something to be grasped externally. You've got to find your place in the world, you've got to find your role, you've got to live according to an external ethic, and poiesis is you create it for yourself. That's what we talked about. If we serve ourselves and our created meaning and our purpose and our self-fulfilling pursuits, they become our master. That's how it connects to last week. If our life is about finding meaning by serving ourself, then ourself and the self-servingness becomes a master in our life. And we're gonna constantly pursue that which feels like it's fulfilling or self-fulfilling. And it's gonna control our life. But if we understand that there's meaning, there's purpose, there's truth, there's goodness, there's life and life to the full out there to be found, i.e. Jesus created a way for the world to work and for us to manage our resources and our finances that's better for us, the meaning will be found when we get in touch with that. Christians in the room, those who come from a strong Christian heritage, this conversation is not new to you. This is not a surprise to you. This is not offensive to you. If it is, you haven't been listening in Sunday school, right? It's not. Like I said, for those of us in the room who may not be sure where we're at, listen from afar, pay attention, and, and consider the Christian ethic here. This is not an indictment on you in any kind of way, but for Christians in the room, here's what I think our struggle is. Our struggle is not with knowing this. You could quote this, right? You knew, you, you know this, you quote this. And if you woke up every day and you just read the words of Jesus, right, this would be just, it's, it's so obvious to you, you know this, right? The problem for us, because I know this, is I think the problem is that I'm afraid it won't work. Like I don't know about you. What do you think? Like, Are you afraid that it won't work? Do you not take this seriously because you're afraid that it won't work? Maybe you have all sorts of justifications, and maybe they're actually good ones, and I'd be interested to hear that. But for me, the reason why I am not constantly refocusing on how I spend my resources, what I do with my resources, how I see them, it's because I'm actually terrified. I am terrified that the ethic of Jesus and the ways of Jesus is not going to be satisfying enough. I've believed the lie that things are going to satisfy. I'm believing the lie still to this day and wrestling with it. My order, My desires are being constantly disordered every single day in my own heart because of the lie that things are going to satisfy when we know they're not. And Jesus teaches that they're not. But we wrestle with it because we're afraid. The more poetic our culture gets, the more that we're also believing the lie that the whole purpose of life is to create your own meaning, that doesn't help us, right? It makes it even more difficult to grasp the truth and live it out. There's so many options out there and they're all at our fingertips. And if we're just supposed to choose whatever we want to find meaning in and spend our resources in that direction... And that's where our heart's going to go and that's what our master will be. I want to ask you something. How often do you regret spending your time, talents, and money serving Jesus or his purposes? Christians in the room. And if you're not even a Christian in the room or you're not even sure about it, you can think for yourself, how often do you regret spending money on buying your nieces and nephews Christmas gifts and giving generously to them? Or how often do you regret donating to World Vision or Charity Water or whatever your thing is, you know? How often do you feel regret for that? I'm not saying you don't, because I've felt regret before. (laughs) I've given lumps of money to things later to find out they were poorly stewarded, and I felt like I regretted that. I've given lumps of money to organizations before and later learned that somebody was actually profiting off me. I was manipulated. I was emotionally manipulated to give to this thing, and then I regretted it later. So I'm not saying you never regret it, but sincerely, when you think you're following God and the Holy Spirit, and you're just giving more and more generously, do you ever feel like you're missing out? I don't that much, especially when I'm when when I really feel like God's telling me to do it, and when I when I feel like He's the one who's saying, "No, this is this is your thing." I gave to um, we give monthly to a a young man who's trying to start a ministry, and it's not money we necessarily have. We can, make it ha- we can make ourselves have it by being more disciplined, right? But it's not like it was obvious at the end of the month we had that left over, but I don't regret for a second. It's not a small, it's a small amount, but I don't regret it for a second. Like, actually, I'm stoked to hear about what the work that this guy's doing. It's incredible. Never regret it. It's always going towards good stuff. It's always going towards furthering the kingdom of God, and I trust that it is. And so, no, there's not a single regret in my mind. Do you ever dream about what this community could become? And I don't mean the broader community. I mean this faith family or at least people you're connected to in faith. Do you ever dream about what it could become if we just continue to take more seriously serving one master? I dream about this all the time. I don't know about you. It's probably my role too, maybe. I work here, so that helps, right? But, but I dream about this stuff all the time. I dream about the fruit that us stepping further into generosity and giving towards the work that God's about, not towards just our own things and chasing these means of self-fulfillment. I dream about what that could look like. I, I actually picture a community... actually picture a community that... Um, well, that's actually able to meet people's needs and not just give a gift card from a small benevolence fund. Like, I actually picture... Somebody saying, hey, like, I'm in desperate need right now. We can pay first and last month's rent. And, like, freely without even thinking about it. I actually picture a community where, um, like, where teenagers all over the place are actually being connected to and invested into because there's people who have time and resources and capacity to, to reach them. Uh, we went to a Blue Jays game with Resoul, um this last Friday, and, and then I, I actually picture, and I really mean this, I picture if we had the resources, and it's not all about resources, it's about use of resources, but if we had more, we, we, there could be 100 kids at a Blue Jays game that are being connected to mentors and that are being connected to, to, to other leaders and other students who love the Lord and connected to the local church. Like, I actually picture that could be a possibility, and it can be right here in our own city. I actually picture... I picture downstairs. The, if you've seen downstairs, it's like half of a store and it's half of just like crap everywhere, right? And I actually picture like, what, what could we do with that space? And how could we serve students and, 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 and teenagers and, and, and kids with the space? Actually, I have dreams about it. I got pictures of it. I'm excited about it. It's something that I'm constantly thinking about. I'm constantly thinking about the collective joy that we could experience if we planted more churches in Milton. Like, actually, I still think about that. I still, there's 100,000 people who are gonna move into Milton in the next two decades. And I imagine, like, wow, what, what, could, what could we do together? And how could we actually make something happen? Like what would it look like if we were serious about this? If I was serious about it, if I took Jesus as my master so seriously that the majority of my attention and my focus and my resources were towards the things that He's about and that He's doing, I have a dream, man. To like we haven't, I haven't done overseas like work or I haven't sent people there for a long time. Like there's so much to be done in the world, and our resources can go so far all over the world, and um, and we're not really doing anything right now, you know? It's like, not that much. And like there's financial constraints in Canada. And yeah, 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 but man, there's so much to be done in the world. And like I just man, it'd be so cool to like send groups of people across the world cuz we took this seriously. Or, or to send money across the world cuz we took this seriously. Like big chunks of money. Like what what could we do? What kind of impact could we have? I picture that. I picture buying a home and like man, affordable housing is a challenge, right? We have some interns that, that have been asking about, German interns who have been asking about needing housing here in Milton, and, and we've been asking a lot of people, and nobody has said, yeah, I'll house them for a year. Man, I just think, like, gosh, we've got these free teenagers who, who are going to work for us for free, and we just need housing for them, and no one can offer it. We don't have it anymore. Imagine we, can, imagine we could buy a house, you know, together. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying this is a plan. I'm just saying, I picture these things, right? I picture, imagine what we could do, you know? It's so powerful when you start thinking about it and you think of the fruit that could come from that. Imagine we can hire somebody full time to take care of our kids, our kids and then all the kids in this city, in this community. Like, Imagine what, what a person like that could do who's driven, who's passionate, who's committed and who's resourced to do that. It could be a really, really powerful thing and it excites me. I dream about that stuff all the time. And The challenge is for me personally, I dream about it and when I dream about it, I think, gosh, I'd rather do that than own a house in Milton. I don't know about you. I would. I would rather see all that happen than have the security of owning a house in Milton. That's, that's, that's where I'm at. That's where my family's at. Like, we, that would be way cooler than just having the burden of a house and having to fix an air conditioning unit or something, you know, and having to pay for a new water heater. Like, that's so lame. Let the landlord pay for that. <laughs> But I, honestly, like we picture these things, and it's, it's so cool what, what, what life could be like. And, and then owning a home will matter so much less if we're seeing that. It'd be so amazing. But I'm also afraid. I'm afraid that I can dream about that, but that it's going to be as unfulfilling as all the other things that I dream about and that I pursue. And I'm afraid to the point where I keep spending small amounts of money on silly little things that I don't need to. And that at the end of the year, I don't have extra to give. So I'm telling you, and I'm being vulnerable with you and honest with you. These are the dreams, and then I have the same fear. I'm scared. I'm scared it's going to leave me feeling empty. I'm scared it's going to leave me feeling regret. I'm scared that it's going to leave me feeling as unfulfilled as that vacation. And I should have probably just taken that vacation. This is back and forth of these two masters. The call to commitment today... Is not what probably what you'd expect. I'm sure you've been to church. I don't know if you grew up in Pentecostal churches every Sunday. It's like, come on down to the altar and get saved again, right? Anybody been saved more than seven times in their life? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah exactly. You grew up Pentecostal, right? Yeah, yeah, I Pentecostal. All the time, right? And you meant it, right? Like, it mattered. You'd listen to something. You'd be like, gosh, I've got to do something. If you're listening and you don't think, gosh, I've got to do something, that I'm terrible at talking or you're terrible at listening, <laughs> Or you just don't love Jesus, right? You know, like but if you're sincere, right, you feel like I gotta do something. And sometimes the call to commitment is like, this is your moment. Jesus is your master. Come on down and recommit your life to Jesus, right? And if that's what the Holy Spirit's saying to you, I'm not gonna stop that. But what I imagine with most people in this room is that you've done that a bunch of times, right? I imagine for most of us in the room, the problem isn't that we need another altar call so that we can wake up tomorrow morning and forget. Right, and do it again next Sunday, right? I imagine that's not what we need. I, what I need, what I need is, is I need to commit to a group of people long-term. I need to commit to a community for long-term. And, and, and it needs to be a community that's going to be moving in this direction, right? It's got to be. Not, not going to focus on a million other things. going to focus on this thing, you know? Not just the money thing. Just to focus on Jesus being our master and, and commit to that long-term and see where that goes. And so my invitation to you today... My invitation to you today is not not to recommit your life to Jesus today because Jesus needs to be your only master because he says so and if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what it means and it means you live in a certain way, right? The invitation is that we're doing our best to move in a direction where we live in such a way and a rhythm that Monday morning we don't forget what we just talked about on Sunday and my invitation to you is to join us for that, or come along for that, or continue tracking with that. Because when real life transformation is going to happen is when we all wake up on Tuesday morning, and we are reminded ourselves by our own time in the word and by our relationship with God and the Holy Spirit that Jesus is our one master. Not when we show up on Sunday morning. James K. Smith, he says, you can't think your way to Christ-likeness. You have to become your way to Christ-likeness. You have to practice your way to Christ-likeness. And if you've been around for any amount of time, you know that we're continuing to move in the direction of trying to practice our way into Christ-likeness, into Jesus as our master and our only master, and finding victory in that truth and reality. I have one master in his name of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, these, uh, these conversations are sometimes even hard to... They're hard to listen to. They're even harder to say. Because you feel like a hypocrite. Lord, I feel like a hypocrite just saying the words of Jesus. But the beauty of this community and the beauty of your grace is that we have your word, we have scripture, and we have your life and example to learn from. That it's not about somebody telling us something for their own gain, but it's about you telling us for your gain. And Lord, we um I don't know about everyone in the room, but Lord, I want to ta- I want to say to you that I um like everything I have is yours. And I believe that. I don't live that way because I'm scared. But I trust that that's true. And I want to live in that. And I want to live in that way. And I want your help to do that. Lord Jesus, I pray for this community as we continue to track together, as we continue to grow together, as we continue to love one another and get to know one another, that we can be the kind of community that can talk about all the things that are challenging and all the ways in our life that we are not serving you as our master, and that we can do that with humble hearts, submissiveness to one another, love for one another, trust in one another, accountability towards one another, and that you bless that. That's what I'm asking too, Lord. I ask that you bless people for their generosity and their giving and their support to whatever it is, if it's for you and it's for your kingdom. I ask that you bless them for that. There are people who have given above and beyond for many years to support incredible work here in Milton. And sometimes it's easy to forget the sacrifices that they make. They forget them themselves. And I just pray also, Lord, that you bless people. Remind them of the fruit of their sacrifices and their support of all the work that you're doing here in Milton and beyond. Give them joy. Remind them of the blessing it is to have, to give. And bless them with more so they can continue to be more generous. Thank you, Jesus, for these conversations, the ones that cut right through the most personal parts of our life. We want to serve you with the most personal parts of our life. All this is said and, and prayed and sung and done in the name of our Lord, King Jesus. Amen.